Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 71. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel. Here we are again, another week, another set of bad actors, malicious code, and compromised systems. We're back once again to talk about some of the cutting-edge intel being shared by our awesome community in the Lima Charlie Slack channel. And as always, a huge thank you to all those folks that take the time to share their knowledge with the rest of us. It's been a couple of weeks since we did our last Intel chat, and today I'm joined once again by the one and only Matt Bromley, who is here to help us make sense of what we're seeing coming through the wire. How are you doing today, Matt? Hey, Chris, I'm doing well. Really, really well. It's been a busy couple of weeks, as you mentioned. I, I got to say, it's been a fun couple of weeks as well, but uh, great to be back here and, and great to be like working on putting this together because the Intel chat has been brimming with stuff for us to talk about. It's good to be here reflecting on it. Yeah, I sure noticed the uptick in activity there. It's exciting to see the community getting so involved. Oh, yeah. Love it. Love it. And again, as always, right, a huge nod and a huge thanks to the folks who uh, participate and drop that intel in there for us. It makes for some really interesting reading as time goes on. The other thing I'll mention, too, which has been great, and maybe this is because we've kind of been talking about it, especially some of the, the recent, you know, coverage and things that we've done. We've actually had quite a few new members join there as well. And as I'm looking at it at this moment, uh, as of October 17th, we are up to about 334 members in our Intel channel. So a really great representation and, and another huge thanks to the team that just kind of join and, and share this great knowledge with us. Yeah. So we've been out of our normal routine because we've been busy with a couple conferences. Two weeks ago, we were in Arlington, Virginia for the inaugural Mission Control Security Engineering and Automation Conference, which was an incredible experience. Uh, the event had 17 speakers from across the industry, several hands-on workshops, and took place at the Sands Capitol Building, which provided a view to the horizon looking out across the D.C. metro area. It was an amazing conference in an amazing setting. And then, Matt, last week you were at MSSP Alert Live. Anything about that conference you are able to share with us? Uh, I can, I'm happy to talk about both, Chris. So Mission Control, first off, awesome, awesome event. You know, we had a really great representation, first off, from just the security community in general, number one. And number two, it was a conference focused on 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 building, on engineering, on creating and things. And we got to have some really great talks and in-depth discussions about, like, what it is to build things out and what that future looks like. And maybe, you know, some different approaches towards security. The hands-on labs we had were great. Lots of great social time. Uh, lots of amazing conversations that came out of it as well. In fact, I'm still reeling in some of the conversations I had. Lots of connections made, which is, again, something else that, you know, I think is, is sometimes hard to find at larger conferences. And then, yeah, Lima Charlie team uh, was back at MSSP Alert Live in D.C. literally two days later. And that was another really fun event. Made a lot of very similar connections out there. Folks building amazing things, different product integrations. And I'm, I'm just going to say this publicly. Uh, I'm really excited for kind of what the next six months bring for uh, the Lima Charlie platform. And I think a lot of folks are going to find a, a significant, significant uh, benefits to that. Yeah, definitely lots of exciting stuff in the future. All right, lots of stuff to cover today. So let's get to it. Uh, first up, we have a joint advisory that was published by the NSA, the FBI, and CISA, along with the Japan National Police Agency and the Japan National Center of Incident Readiness and Strategy for Cybersecurity. That's an awful lot of agencies. Uh, they've released a joint cybersecurity advisory detailing activity of the People's Republic of China linked to cyber actors known as Black Tech, 
BlackTech has demonstrated capabilities in modifying router firmware without detection and exploiting routers' domain trust relationships for pivoting from international subsidiaries to headquarters in Japan and the U.S. Active since 2010, BlackTech actors have historically targeted a wide range of U.S. and East Asia public organizations and private industries. BlackTech actors' TTPs include developing customized malware and tailored persistence mechanisms for compromising routers. These TTPs allow the actors to disable logging and abuse trusted domain relationships. This is a pretty incredible report and contains lots of details about the TTPs used by the actor. Definitely worth a deep dive for anybody interested in this kind of APT activity. And this is certainly not the first time we've heard about nation-states compromising networking equipment and quietly installing persistence. Will we ever have a real sense of how many backdoors have been dropped into little bits of networking equipment the world over? Uh, you know, this is, Chris, this is a, a fantastic release and was really a, a great read. So a huge hat tip to the various folks involved in this one. Number one, Black Tech, you know, demonstrating capabilities and modifying router firmware. I mean, to your point, right, it's, it's advanced nation state groups that can do that. It's not every single group that has those capabilities. I think where this becomes really unique is understanding kind of the hardware supply chain. You know, we spent a lot of time on this podcast and security talks a lot about vulnerabilities and risks to the software supply chain, but this hardware supply chain where where folks are able to kind of get into that that hardware process, and, and I'm not talking about necessarily modifying devices before they're shipped out, but more about, you know, getting into kind of the network hardware side of things and, and dropping in vulnerabilities or taking advantage of exploits, or sorry, I should say dropping exploits or taking advantage of vulnerabilities is, is like a next level type of attack, you know, because it's not so much looking for that, that web application or that open port. It's sitting in kind of where all the network traffic traverses, you know, and I'm, you know, looking at this report here, right? Black tech actors bypass the router's built-in security features by installing older legitimate firmware that they then modify in memory to allow the installation of their own unsigned firmware. And I mean, there's a lot of work and stuff and a lot of development that goes into building these types of things out. But Christy, your point, what that does is that really narrows the field and the types of groups who can do this. But I will say, there's also another inherent risk here, which is the field of vendors who offer these types of products. It's not that diverse. I mean, let's just say hypothetically, you've got five or six vendors that can deploy network hardware that can handle the speeds that a lot of enterprises move at these days. You compromise one, you've compromised 20% of the market, you know? And I think it's one of those where when this type of stuff happens, you better believe every other vendor takes a deep, hard look at their hardware and software to see, can this type of thing be done with us? And has it been done already? You know, the other tough part about it is if we don't get these types of disclosures and this type of thing, this type of compromise just kind of lives in, you know, in, in classified knowledge or something like that, we might never hear about it. And hopefully it just kind of quickly gets washed over or whatnot. I don't think we see that much of this these days. I, I think we see a lot of responsible disclosure and things like that happen. Um, but, you know, it's hard to know because these are really well-hidden attack techniques. It's hard to know just how widespread they could be until a report like this comes along and folks start digging and realize, oh my gosh, this has been here for, you know, months or years uh, until someone actually finally noticed. But that's the threat actor gamble, Right. They developed this really amazing way to compromise network hardware, for example, 
And depending on how long it can last for, it can be one of the most successful exploits they've ever developed, or it might be one of the least successful exploits, depending on, on how long they're able to maintain this thing for. But in this case right here, you know, looking at just how long the threat actor has been doing this, right? Active since 2010, black tech actors have historically targeted these types of things. So just imagine you and I are sitting here talking about this. These threat actors have 13 years of experience, right? Developing these payloads and this type of stuff. That is, I mean, that, that, there's a couple of startups that live and die in that time period, right? This is a long time they've been going through it. So it's hard to say just how widespread this might be, but we're not talking about run-of-the-mill threat actors here. These are experienced guys. Yeah, and a lot of that networking equipment has a long shelf life because corporations don't like to upgrade that stuff until they start to hit bottlenecks with their data flow. Absolutely. You know, that's the other side of it too, is that these things do live in the infrastructure for quite a long time. You called it, right? They're not going to go and change your routers every single year and stuff like that, which is another reason why they're great targets. So this is one of those kind of low and slow approaches where you can get crazy compromise and you can get widespread compromise, stay hidden for quite a long time and just like drop and just, you know, extract data if you need to, exfil information, steal accounts, passwords, things like that. And, you know, everyone's looking at the compromised systems. No one's looking at the compromised router. So it's 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 an interesting technique to have, but let's hope it's not as widespread and uh, it's they're limited to the instances that we know about. Yeah, there definitely seems to be some smart people looking at the problem. So hopefully we'll get. Uh, oh my gosh! Yeah, as you here. said in the beginning, there's plenty of agencies analyzing this one. Yeah. All right. So next one up, ESET researchers have uncovered a Lazarus attack against an aerospace company in Spain, where the group deployed several tools, most notably a publicly undocumented backdoor the researchers have named Lightless Can. Lazarus operators obtained initial access to the company's network last year after a successful spear phishing campaign masquerading as a recruiter for Meta, the company behind Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp. The fake recruiter contacted the victim via LinkedIn messaging and sent two coding challenges required as part of a hiring process, which the victim then downloaded and executed on a company device. The first challenge is a very basic project that displays the text Hello World, and the second one prints a Fibonacci sequence. ESET Research was able to reconstruct the initial access steps and analyze the toolset used by Lazarus thanks to the cooperation with the affected aerospace company. I found this one to be quite clever. It dangles a bit of a carrot in front of the target, which makes them more likely to act, and then because they are developers, they probably have some pretty good access. I don't know if I would be excited about being recruited by Meta, but I imagine some people would. Given this attack has been successful with targets that should know better, what can we do to defend against clever social engineering attacks like this? Yeah, Chris, I think this is one of those instances where, and again, I'm speaking from personal experience here, you know, I've, I've definitely had some headhunters and recruiters, you know, they come after you with a little bit of tenacity and things like that. But when it's just like really, you know, really aggressive in the approach that they take, or there, there's some other thing where you're kind of like, wow, I didn't really expect to go through this, right? Um, then that's something obviously to watch out for. Now, I guess, you know, what we don't know is how much of it was the recruiter you know, pushing a coding challenge versus how much of it was the person responding and saying that they'd go forward and stuff like that. You know, I, I, I would probably go the route of saying if the uh, if the fish or if the lure was, you know, hey, Chris, I've got a job available for you. Go ahead and complete this coding challenge and you're all set, blah, blah. Right. If, if it was kind of like, you know, introductory there and everything like that, um, then that might be a different a different stance. Reading through the article, I, I did found that, you know, 
the unaware targets, they, they were engaged in conversation first. And, and I think this is one of those things where, you know, it starts out as maybe like a, hey, you know, I, I'm reading like the exact dialogue here, right? The victim said, hey, I'm fine. You know, thanks for your friend request. Like it started off innocently enough. Um, to me, this comes down to, you know, the recognition, hey, I want to send you a Word doc or I want to send you an Excel doc or I want to send you a PDF or something like that is the part where you should be a little bit like, hmm, something doesn't seem right, you know? Uh, a lot of these recruiting challenges or coding challenges and stuff, legitimate ones, are, are done online. They're done in web apps and stuff. And it's weird, right? We're kind of advising people on how to recognize a legitimate job application or not. But that's really what it comes down to. The Going back to like the classic security advice, right? If someone wants to send you a PDF, be careful, or send you a Word doc, be careful. And if they insist that you open this thing and do this thing and so on and so forth, those are things that I think should be throwing up alerts. And, and the things that I would be looking for with these types of attacks is, you know, someone really pushing to send you a document or something like that is is something I, I wouldn't want to hear about. Yeah, so definitely just like more vigilance and uh, kind of a bit of a shame to those developers for not knowing better since they understand the technology. I'm, I'm always hesitant to throw the blame at the user. I mean without knowing kind of the work environment that they're in and whatnot, maybe that recruiting message was like the light of an end of a tunnel, right? And I'm, I, I don't know. I'm just saying sometimes, you know, don't get me wrong. I've, I've had uh, plenty of, of, of headhunters and recruiters and stuff send you messages and, and the initial message text looks really attractive, you know? And of course you're not going into it and whatnot, but if you've got someone, and, and I think this goes a little bit towards victim profiling and stuff as well. It is really hard for an organization to do or to know. But, you know, if I've got a developer on my team who wants to leave and there's a recruiter who's offering them a way out, half of that barrier to identifying and building a victim profile is already done. It's gone. I've removed it because I've got someone who wants a way out. So they already want the the thing, malicious or not, that I'm offering, you know? What we're looking at here more is everyone in general, whenever you're being pushed to open a document or access a document or something like that, that's where those spidey senses should kick in. There's nothing wrong with reaching out to recruiters and talking about job opportunities and things like that. But understand that, you know, it's it's another attack vector, number one. And then number two, be careful when they want to send you documents and things. And then number three, and this is just general advice for everyone. Look, don't do this stuff on your work computer and whatnot. All right. And that's just a general piece of advice. Don't do this on your work computer. Because if you've got an adversary who's coming after you and you're trying to search for a job or whatever, right, this particular case might be, don't do it on your work computer. Because then if you get a malicious PDF, they install it on your home system, whatever. But in this case here, like I think there's a little bit of just uh, carelessness when it comes to what devices were being used. But the general takeaway for me is watch out for folks sending you random documents. Yeah, that's interesting too. As you said it, it, it made a lot more sense to me where a threat actor could maybe look for companies going through layoffs or something like that and then start dangling job opportunities. And it's just a human thing to to jump at something like that because it's offering you some hope. Absolutely. And then I've always, I've told folks to, you know, one thing to watch out for, especially from a, like a LinkedIn perspective is LinkedIn has all these different badges, you know, like looking for work, hiring, so on and so forth and whatnot. I mean, those are great badges for job seekers or, or, or people, you know, recruiters, hunters, stuff like that. But it's also a really good badge for an adversary. Like, oh, this person is hunting 
or they're looking for a job, fantastic. Let me send them a bunch of resumes, see if I can get them to click on something or whatnot. You know what I mean? It's 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 one of those uh, events where you're kind of like, well, let me uh, let me just have a careful eye with this one. All right. The next one is from the wonderful researchers of Unit 42 at Palo Alto. They are reporting that the Klopp ransomware group recently began using torrents to distribute victim data after a rather notorious campaign stealing data from thousands of companies. You will probably remember the Move It breach back in May 2023. Yeah, that big one. Well, Klopp was behind the breach, having gained access by leveraging a zero-day SQL injection. CISA estimates that this group was able to victimize over 3,000 U.S.-based organizations and over 8,000 globally. The scope of this is staggering. To give a little background, Klopp emerged in early 2019 and quickly became notorious for employing extortion tactics against victims to increase the pressure to pay the ransom. They steal data and release snippets of it. The idea here is that the victim would rather pay than risk having their data exposed globally, which could be more damaging than any traditional ransomware activity. Historically, victim data released by Klopp has been done so on leak sites that exist on the dark web, but anybody that has used a Tor network before will know that anonymity makes data transfer very slow, which in turn makes leaking the data of thousands of companies so inefficient that it becomes ineffective. What they're doing by releasing the torrent is being able to push out a lot of data really fast. I find it interesting when threat actors change tactics like this. Have you seen threat actors leak data via torrents before? I imagine it must be somewhat common, and if not, do you think this is going to be the norm with more and more ransomware actors pivoting to include extortion as part of their tactics? So this is actually a tried-and-true technique for a lot of adversaries out there, and yeah, extortion with relation to ransomware is something that's been around for a few years now and is a common tactic. It's another way to either get more money to double tap for money or to guarantee that payments get made because if you steal sensitive data, not only can you hold it for ransom, but you can also hold it for, you know, sorry, I should say, not only can you ransom it, but you can also hold it for ransom. Um, Then in that case, you're both encrypting it and you're saying, hey, not only can I decrypt this anytime I want, but I can also leak it anytime I want as well. Um, In that case there, you know, this is a very common approach. The, the use of torrents and stuff is, I think, another thing. Torrenting has long been associated with uh, both legitimate and uh, adversarial file sharing and things like that. I don't, I don't think that necessarily was, was, anything, was anything new there, in my opinion. Um, but what I did find interesting about reading through this one was really just, you know, th- how common this has become or how much of an expected technique this has become where I think these days, and I remember having this conversation with someone maybe a week or two ago, you might as well assume that ransomware is going to exclude, uh, sorry, include extortion these days. It's just part of the business model now. It's part of the business model for them. that It's no longer an option or you know a possibility. I think it's just the way that it works now. And just watch out, folks, right? If you fall victim to a ransomware attack, just, just watch out because extortion is part of it. And it's a threat you're going to have to deal with and whatnot. And Hopefully threat actors, you know, and I'm reaching here, but hopefully threat actors stick by their words and don't, you know, extort, don't leak if they say they're not going to and stuff like that. But you never know. They do. They are custodians of your data for a while and you want to make sure you can minimize that. So, you know, I can't say prevent all attacks now, but work hard to minimize those because it is a very, very powerful statement when they can both hold you for ransom from an encryption perspective and threaten you with extortion. Uh, okay, so Checkmarks is reporting on a persistent open source supply chain attacker targeting the Python ecosystem who's been active and evolving since April 2023. 
the threat actor has been relentlessly deploying hundreds of malicious packages through various usernames, accumulating nearly 75,000 downloads. The malicious code is explicitly designed to run on Windows systems and is designed to steal sensitive information as well as mechanisms for targeting cryptocurrency users that rewrite the cryptocurrency address to redirect transactions to the attacker. The researchers note that they have been watching the techniques employed evolve and that they have observed this threat actor directing over six figures worth of cryptocurrency into their account. This one should give everybody shivers. It's one thing for a company to track dependencies and use a software bill of materials, but I can't count the number of times over the years where I was playing around and checking out new libraries, open source projects, etc. I feel like it'd be very easy to download a malicious package like this. How do we as tinkerers and developers stay safe with this kind of prolific supply chain compromise? Yeah, Chris, this is a tough one, right? Because we can't ask every amateur developer to go through and audit every single package they download, right? Um, I think one of the issues here is that we typically find out about these things after the fact. So if someone notices something suspicious, then they trace it back to the package. And then a team like Checksmark goes and does, you know, that check marks goes and does like the final kind of uh, holistic analysis, like, you know, package downloads and, and developer information and stuff like that. Where I think there might be some usefulness is if I'm on the development side, you know, I, I don't want to say audit all the code of every package you download, but but do watch out for the packages that you import or that you ingest and things like that. And also look for age, look for reliability. There's a reason that there's rating systems on these and whatnot. And I would probably utilize those to your advantage at the best you can and and really just just kind of be careful. The other thing is, and I've I've often recommended folks do this, especially at the amateur developer side. If you're downloading or utilizing a third party or external package to provide a unique functionality, just import that functionality, that thing that you need. Don't import the entire package if you can. Because what's happening is, you know, some folks, they download a thing that let's say a package is, you know, 10 different pieces. They need one piece of it, right? They download the whole thing. They import star and then they only use that one piece out of it because it's a lot easier. And I would say just import the different functions that you need. Um, and then also look to see if there's things that are like built in and stuff that you could use as well. And I'm getting more into, you know, a developer preference phase here. But I would say just just watch out for the things that you download and just be careful. I know you can't audit every single code file that gets brought down. The other way to go about this too is to look for detection and response capabilities, right? I would not expect uh, python.exe or whatever the script language is to be modifying the registry as it did in this case, or modifying services or disabling AV or anything like that. So this is one instance where I'd say, you know, maybe a little bit of detection capabilities on the system would help detect this kind of stuff, at least in an enterprise environment for sure. And do you think with the increase in like open source supply chain attacks we're seeing, eventually we're going to see different package managers and stuff like that require developers contributing to authenticate themselves in a way that's legitimate instead of oh sort my of the- i would certainly hope so yeah i would certainly hope so but all that would do is it would just give us a point to backtrack to and i don't know if it adds any legitimacy to it you know because you got to think this is exactly what code signing was designed to do back in the day it was designed to prove oh this thing is legitimate because it was signed by someone who has a certificate and so on and so forth well then adversaries just figured out how to steal or forge certificates and whatnot right so I think it might insert maybe another level of confidence to it, but I don't know if it will eradicate the problem. Uh, I, I would I would like to see maybe at the package management level some additional vetting processes or something that go in place. And I mean, I, I, you know, I hate to say it, but maybe even this is a consideration. 
maybe at the high top level, right? We run packages through a, a the kind of like a almost like a malware analysis engine. And I'm high in the sky here. I don't know if this is feasible at all. But maybe running packages through like a malware analysis engine and being like, hey, we don't make any decisions, right? Completely unopinionated. But here's what happens when you install and call this package and let folks just kind of make their own decision from there on out, you know? And if I install it and it does nothing other than what it's supposed to, we're good. But if I download a package and that thing goes and it, you know, changes registry keys and so on and so forth, well then, I mean, yeah, I'm definitely not going to pull that thing down. Well, there you have it. Anybody listening, looking for a new company idea, a sandbox service for package distribution sounds like a- There we go. Sandbox service for package management. There you go. All right. So this next one, uh, Ars Technica is reporting the discovery of thousands of Android devices infected with malware right out of the box. Researchers divided the compromised devices into two categories, Bad Box and Peach Pit. Bad Box focuses on compromised Android devices, primarily budget streaming boxes costing under $50. These devices are often unbranded and sold under various aliases, making their origin less apparent. Researchers found seven Android TV boxes and one tablet with backdoors installed, and they've seen signs of 200 different models of Android devices that may be impacted. These results align with findings from other security researchers examining the issue. Their report, led by data scientist Marion Habibi, revealed at least 74,000 Android devices worldwide showing signs of bad box infection, including instances within U.S. schools. Additionally, PeachBit, a related ad fraud operation, involved a minimum of 39 Android and iOS apps. Google has since removed these apps in response to the research, while Apple acknowledges issues in some of the reported apps. A full list of infected devices can be found in the article, which will be linked in the show notes. What do we do with this, Matt? Is this simply a case of you get what you pay for? Yeah, you know, this is this is one of those like really really tough like, you know, I it's it's open source software, cheap devices made by a probably less than reputable uh program or less than reputable developer or 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 whatever it might be, right? And unfortunately, yeah, you get what you pay for in this case. You know, this is one of those instances where I tell folks, right? Like, you know, maybe the Amazon deal is is too good to be true or whatever it might be, right? Um, and, and this is one of those where just be careful. And, and I hate to say it. I, I hate to say to folks like, well, you know, you went the cheapest route because, and that's what you get because there are plenty of companies out there like K through 12, uh, various different folks that have budgets and are like, wow, I can get a thing for, you know, 50 bucks and it provides the the thing that I need or whatever, right? So this is like one thing that I've kind of struggled with a little bit Let's say, for example, this was bought by, you know, a school at a K through 12 thing. And I, I, I don't know. I don't know the ultimate target of this threat actor, meaning the victim that they want to go after. But let's just say a school buys these things and it suffices for everything that the school needs. And then we turn around and find all oh, these things are compromised, right? Well, the school got the service that they needed, right? They got the functionality out of it. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying to folks, there are plenty of markets out there. And sure enough, the article does reference schools out there. There are plenty of markets out there for folks who are like, I don't have these massive budgets. I don't have a team to test every single piece of hardware that comes in the door. I don't have a a security team to monitor every packet that goes out the window and things like that, you know? So I I think in this case right here, it's just an opportunity of educating folks. Like, you, you know, you pay for what you get, unfortunately, but also 
maybe let's find ways to maybe wrap detections around these capabilities or something like that and stop these manufacturers from pre-installing malware on these devices. Or we go another route, right? I buy some cheap knockoff from a site somewhere. I firewall that thing off or I close it or segment it off of a network. So even if it does have built-in malware, who cares? It can't go anywhere, right? All I needed to do is, is, is run a bunch of applications on a TV and that's it. And I can do all of that locally. So maybe in some cases, just blocking the thing from getting out. Who cares in that case? Yeah, I think the one the, the thing that bugged me about this one is that like the people buying these things are obviously already facing a lot of challenges, either budget personally or professionally and in, in opting to go for these cheap devices to, to try and solve a problem they have with the limited funds they have. And, you know, just targeting the, the lowest people on the rung kind of feels extra bad. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is an area where we 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 want to see some change. We don't we don't want folks who are low on budgets to be getting impacted by malicious attacks and whatnot. Okay, so GitHub Security Lab, in coordination with Ilya Lipnitsky, the maintainer of LibQ and the Distros mailing list, has disclosed a zero-day memory corruption vulnerability in LibQ, noted as CVE-2023-43641. LibQ is a library used for parsing queue sheets, a metadata format for describing the layout of the tracks on a CD. It is used in various audio software, but what makes this particularly worth noting is that LibQ is used by TrackMiners, which is a program that is included with GNOME. The default graphic desktop environment used by a lot of different open source operating systems, including most flavors of Linux. TrackMiners indexes files in your home directory, making it easy to search in file search boxes and functions like that. This exploit can be triggered when a user clicks on a link that surreptitiously downloads a .q file, which gets indexed by track miners, causing it to run. The researchers did not release any sample code, but did show a video of this exploit being used to gain code execution and launch a program. The article goes further into the technical aspects, but for me, this is just yet another example of how vulnerable projects with so many open source dependencies can be. And even though they haven't released any POC code yet, they will be doing so soon, and I don't have much confidence that all those people out there running Ubuntu are going to be patching regularly. Is this the kind of exploit that we will see out in the wild for a long time to come? You know, Chris, this is probably one that that is going to exist for quite a while here just because of update schedules and virtual machines and things like that. You know what I mean? But, I mean, where this is actually getting utilized or exploited i don't know if we're going to know that population for quite a while right there might be a one-off case here or there where someone says hey this this amazing track by tracker minor thing was put out there um i i do think where it's interesting is that this i think was actually the result of an audit uh, if i read correctly here right some of the one of the blog posts kevin backhouse does does specialize in there but the reason I decided to audit LibQ for security vulnerabilities is that it's used by tracker miners, right? These are applications that index files in your home directories and things like that. And I think in this case, right, we're not seeing act, uh, evidence of activity in the wild. We are instead seeing like kind of an audit that goes through and whatnot. However, note that uh, if there is someone out there who's targeting Linux systems or knows that, you know, uh, the GNOME UI or anything like that is in use, they might whip this out just to see what happens. I see it being built as probably a default plugin within Metasploit and Cobalt Strike and things like that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think the, this thing is going to be lived just by folks having outdated virtual machines in, you know, VPSs and VM templates and things like that. But a quick apt update will likely fix this, um, especially like, you know, it, it, depending on the different Linux distribution that you've got. 
But because uh, they do mention that they did find it relevant in uh, most recent versions of Ubuntu and Fedora. So I guess we'll call it an apt update and a yum update to fix this. But that being said, you know, it's, uh, excuse me, it's likely going to be something that will be around for a long time. But I don't, I don't think, and I hope I'm right. I don't want to be wrong in this one. I don't think we'll ever see a massive case get blown open by this one. Yeah. Anybody using Linux in the production environment either doesn't have GNOME or is updating regularly. Yeah, or there's nothing on there worth stealing. I hope, I hope, I hope, but who knows? All right, so our last one today is another one from Checkmarks, which is very similar to the previous one from Checkmarks, but at the enterprise level. In September 2023, a targeted campaign unfolded via PYPy targeting developers utilizing Alibaba cloud services, AWS, and Telegram. The attackers concealed malicious code within these packages set to activate only when specific functions were invoked. This operation made extensive use of typo squatting and starjacking techniques to entice developers towards their malicious packages, with a specific focus on imitating packages that were absent from the PY package manager. Basically, the attacker crafted a similarly named package and uploaded it to the PY package manager, knowing the actual open source package was not available there and linked the packages to unrelated GitHub repos with high ratings to make it look like the legitimate and popular project. This latter part of the attack is easy because most statistics displayed by package managers do not go through any kind of validation process. The article goes on to break the attack down in some detail and highlights that one of the packages that was impersonated was called Telethon, which has 69 million downloads. Hard to miss with those kind of numbers. What do we do with this one, Matt? I think this is another instance yet again. By the way, hats off to the Checkmarks team for, uh, you know, having a lot of insight into these types of packages and stuff like that. I guess someone got really busy with this one here. Uh, This is another instance where, you know, the average bear is likely going to fall victim to things just because they're they're not watching typo squatted domains and they're not watching for different package names and things like that. You know, I, I, I think what is, you know, an important takeaway here is the folks who are developing those big apps, the, you know, AWS, Telegram, and things like that, they, they, there's a little bit of a security onus on them, right? Be careful what you're downloading. Be careful what you're utilizing. Be careful what you're integrating with. Sometimes if a packet seems too good to be true, it might be too good to be true. And, and just watch out, right? Keep a, keep an inventory of the packages that get used. Um, watch out for things that, you know, maybe just seem too good to be true. Watch out for the typo squatting ones. And, and this is an area where I think, you know, maintaining an inventory of the packages that you need to use or you prefer to use can be much better rather than just saying, uh, I think it was called Telethon at one point, And then you just download like the nearest one or anything like that. You know what I mean? Um, this is one where you specify a particular version or a case sensitivity or something like that. Um, and, you know, if someone says, hey, I've got the package Telethon 2, it's much better than Telethon, Right. Well, Telethon's been around for 10 years and you've been around for two months. So look look at the date correlation there to see what makes sense and whatnot. The other thing too, for folks to watch out for is watch out for the documentation. A lot of times the typo squatted one will change the name or try to appear like a new version, but the documentation or the, you know, uh, TLDR or the, you know, the MOD or whatever is exactly the same, is exactly the same thing. And that's where you want to look out and say, you know, huh, upgraded version, but documentation is exactly the same. Something's not right here. So watch out for those instances where it looks like packages just clearly copy and pasted. Other than that, you know, like I said, developers, just be careful what you're using. Keep an inventory 
and try to utilize the most reputable packages that you can. Yeah. And for anybody listening, this is definitely a problem area in the technology stack used by almost every developer in the world. So if you uh, have a way to solve this problem elegantly, I think there's uh, some opportunity there. Absolutely. Absolutely. But no, hats off again to the Checkmarks team for providing uh, some really good insight into package threats over the past couple of weeks. Awesome. Well, it's been another fun one, Matt. Thanks again for coming and doing this with me. I'm sure we'll have more things to talk about next week and I'm looking forward to it. Likewise, Chris, as always, we'll talk to you on the next one. And a huge uh, second thanks to the folks on our Intel channel who keep amazing things going for us. All right. Take care. Awesome. And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.